listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, If you were here last week, you know, well, I should say, if you've been here but you weren't here last week, you might be expecting us to continue in Luke, our study of the early history of the church. But we're taking a couple of weeks, kind of stepping out of that. Uh, Sorry, our study in Acts. We're stepping out of Acts to go into Luke to talk about some of these big questions about Christmas. Now, there's four weeks in Advent and So we're only tackling four big questions, even though there's like a hundred that we could think of to ask. But last week, whether you were here or not, Pastor Nathan helped us answer the question, why did Jesus have to come to earth? Um, You know, in other words, why did we need someone to rescue us, to, to save us, to free us from our sin and shame? Like, why couldn't we just do it ourselves? Why do we need someone to come from the outside? This week, we're tackling our second big question in this series, why the incarnation. Why the the incarnation? Why did God come to earth in this specific way? Or in other words, you know, does it matter that Jesus was totally human and completely God? Does that matter? And if it matters, like, why? It's a huge question, and I get 28 minutes and 42 seconds to try to answer it. Uh, So that's what we're going to do together this morning. And of course, to to answer that question, we're going to start here in Luke uh, with the passage you just heard read, and we're going to end up looking at the whole story of the Bible uh, before we're we're done with the morning. So uh, turn to Luke 1. We're going to jump in there together. As you're turning there, I got to tell you about something that happened this week. Pastor Jeff introduced me to what he described as the absolute best, worst Christmas song ever written. Um, I guess this is a song from the mid-70s, no offense to any of you from the mid-70s, but it had kind of resurfaced this year, and so it's making the rounds on the internet uh, about this song, and I I just have to tell you about it, because once I listened to it, I couldn't help but make other people listen to it as well. So I'm going to ruin the whole song for you right now. It's absolutely great. It's called An Old-Fashioned Christmas or something like that, A Good Old-Fashioned Christmas. And the song starts out with this mom singing to her daughter and to her son, we're going to have a good old-fashioned Christmas. Daddy's going to be home soon. He'll be here. He'll walk through the door at 10 minutes after 9. We know because the bus he rides is always on time. It's a great setup for like a Christmas Eve song, right? Uh, about public transportation and it's just the spirit of Christmas. Well, they're singing, we're gonna have this good old fashioned Christmas, good old fashioned Christmas, and suddenly in the middle of the song, or I guess it's not quite the middle yet, it's in the first third, in this first third of the song, these like sirens come on and says, we interrupt this programming to bring you news. Bus number five out of New Haven has skidded on a patch of ice and slammed into a tree. We'll let you know as further news develops or something like that. Well, then it goes back to uh, the, the family, right? And the, the, the kids are asking, well, isn't that the bus that daddy rides to get home from work? And she's like, kids, don't worry. Nothing bad's going to happen on Christmas. We're going to have a good old-fashioned Christmas. Daddy's going to be home, and we're going to celebrate together. And then, you guessed it, news alert breaks in. I'm sad to tell you that We have an update on the bus. There were no survivors. (laughs) When Jeff told me about the song, he's like, this has got to be the only Christmas song with the lyric, there were no survivors (laughs) in the song. 
And so it cuts back to the family again, and the little, or the mom's is singing, and she's going, what do I even have to live for anymore if you're gone? And the, and the little girl is going, and who's going to walk me down the aisle on my wedding day? And the boy is a little less big picture. He's like, who's going to buy me toys? And it's like, we're not, we're not going to have a good old-fashioned Christmas anymore. And then, actually, I'm not going to tell you what happens. Okay, I will tell you what happens because I, I need to tell you what happens in order to make the point that I want to make. What happens is the doorbell rings. It's dad. He missed the bus. He was buying extra presents. And I guess he walked home and got there before the bus would have anyway. I don't know how it all works, but I listened to this song. I played it for my wife and she's like, oh, they had a good old fashioned Christmas. This is great. And then we immediately texted her brother and we're like, we need a video of you watch, listening to this song. We need to watch you respond to this song. So he's listening to it. We're watching the video of him. This is like the 17th time I've heard the song now at this point. We're watching him respond to it and he's like, oh no, dad's dead. And then, oh no, dad's alive. And he goes, I wonder what, a, what about the 50 other families who had family on the bus? Like, what about them? He's like, oh well, it's a good old fashioned Christmas. And then Jenna texted it to one of her friends who listened to it and then texted us back and said, I am literally weeping for all of the families who lost someone on this bus. It's not a good old-fashioned Christmas for them. Oh, it's great. I've never heard a Christmas song that interrupts itself to bring you news. Except the more I thought about it, the more I realized, well, that's what every Christmas song does, right? It interrupts in order to bring us news about something that has happened. Now, that song, it's news that, you, you know, now that you know this song exists and you're gonna go search for it, whatever, you're gonna forget about it in a month. It's news that really doesn't impact us at all. But every other Christmas song interrupts with news about something that has happened that we need to respond to. That's the, basically the setting for Luke chapter one, news being proclaimed to Mary and she needs to respond. But this whole question we're trying to answer of why the incarnation is because the incarnation is news that we need to respond to. So as we're going through this, I want you to hold that word news in the back of your mind until we come back around to it. Because the incarnation and why the incarnation, to answer that question, we're going to have to think of the incarnation as news, not just advice or example or any of the other things. So let's jump into Luke chapter 1. You know, we just read verses 26 through 35 or so uh, this morning, and we're not going to go through every specific point of it and every detail of it. Now, most of you probably know how the whole story goes. We're at the beginning of the gospel. This is before a gospel being, uh, you know, a story of Jesus's life, and we're early in the story. We're before Jesus is born. This angel shows up to this young lady named Mary and says, hey, you are going to have a child and by the way, Mary responds with, I don't understand how that works. I've never been intimate with anyone. And we're going to cover that whole question next week, uh, the question of the virgin birth. This is that awkward time at Christmas where celebrations turn into a sex ed lesson. Um, like in, and so anyway, the kids are gone, right? So I can say that? Yep. All right, looking at my boss and he's not smiling. Um, 
Mark, we'll talk later. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk about the virgin birth next week and, and why a virgin birth. Why does that matter? But this week, answering this question about the incarnation, it takes us to a couple of points that the angel makes about this baby who is about to be born, the very explicit things the angel says to Mary. So I want to look at these uh, for the few moments we have together. If you look at verse uh, 32. Right, so the angel is saying to Mary, you are going to conceive, bear a son, call his name Jesus, and he will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And he goes on, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. This is where Mary responds and says, how is this going to happen? And the, and the angel says, well, the Holy Spirit will come over you. The power of the Most High overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So a couple of phrases from that short passage that I want you to hold here. One is Son of the Most High, which shows up twice, and, and Son of God. Those are basically synonyms for each other. And then in the middle, this description of Jesus as ruling over uh, reigning over the house of Jacob in a kingdom that never ends, sitting on the throne of David. See, what these phrases should do for us is remind us uh, that the story of Jesus doesn't begin you know, on page 1016 of this Bible, at the beginning of Luke, or earlier at the beginning of Matthew, the story of Jesus begins on page one because Jesus is, is coming to earth and this is squarely set in the whole big story of what Israel is hoping would happen in the world. So keep these phrases in mind again. Son of the Most High, Son of God. Uh, in between, Jesus is reigning forever over the house of Jacob. He's ruling from the throne of David. Uh, to Mary's ears, these descriptions wouldn't have immediately made her think, oh, this baby I'm about to carry for nine months, this is God himself. She wouldn't be thinking that yet anyway. That, that's something that she and, and we kind of come to as we're reading the story and getting further along and understanding what's happening. Of course, once we realize that, we can look back on this section and read it and kind of hear the fullness of what the angel is saying. But to Mary's ears, son of God, son of the, of the most high would have rung with a, a different idea than, oh, this baby is God. See, to call somebody a, a son of is to say that they're just like their father. They exhibit the same characteristics uh, as their father. You can say you're a, you know, a son of God. I mean, oh, just like God. Or you can use other words there, son of encouragement. Right? This is a person who's just encouraging all the time. Son of reconciliation. And someone who's just building bridges. Son of destruction. Someone who's tearing bridges down. That's just what they're like. So Mary's hearing this baby is going to be just like God, except in the middle of Son of the Most High, Son of God, there's a little bit more that comes into it. This idea that Jesus is going to reign forever on the throne of David, reign over all of Israel. Take the, the Son of God language and combine it with the, oh, ruling as king imagery. And it starts to resonate in line with the promises that God has made to Israel in the past. God had told King David, the greatest king that Israel had, he made, them this, he made him this spectacular promise that one of David's descendants is going to rule and reign over Israel forever. A son of David will be 
king. But that's obviously not the case right now in Israel. There is no king. Israel has no king. The only king, the only lord, is the, the pagan, Caesar, who is you know, ruling from some throne off in Rome. And we know the, the story. Israel had a king, but God had made this covenant agreement with him that said, he said, look, I have rescued you, therefore this is how you live in response to that. And they didn't hold up their end of that agreement, and it led them into exile. And even though they're back in the land they were forced out of in exile, Israel still considers itself in exile, spiritual exile, still waiting to be fully and completely rescued with their own king ruling under them in their own temple where they can live out the the law and the sacrifices, show their love for God in response to what God has done in rescuing them. See, Mary grew up with that hope in her heart. The same hope that every Jewish person grew up with in the first century, that God would show up and do something. Their songs are full of pictures of what it will look like when God shows up and rules his people himself through this king. Scriptures like Psalm 2 Mary grew up hoping Psalm 2 would come true. It's a song that she sang week after week after week over and over and over again growing up, a song that was as familiar to her as Amazing Grace might be to some of us, the kind of song you can sing with your eyes closed. Psalm 2, and all the Psalms, but Psalm 2 is one of those those songs where God says about this great king that's going to come, you are my anointed one, you are my son. So son language, son of the most high, son of God, in between ruling and reigning forever in David's throne over Israel. You see, for Mary, these ideas are coming together. These descriptions are coming together. She's hearing the angel tell her, you are going to be the one who's going to give birth to the king, the son of God, the anointed one. In Hebrew, anointed one is Messiah, right? In Greek, it's it's Christ. You're the one through whom the king is going to come. The angel is is telling her, giving her the news, uh, Messiah is coming, the deliverer is coming, the Christ is coming through her. But does, does she know that, that, that Jesus, the coming Messiah, will be you know, more than just someone who is like God or more than someone who is figuratively adopted by God as the king? Does she know that Jesus is going to be God himself? Maybe not yet. See, that's a, a layer of understanding that takes a while for her, for everyone. Another 30 years, in fact, before Jesus begins working miracles and healings, he begins teaching out in public. He keeps being accused of blasphemy for saying things that make it sound like he thinks he's God himself. Then his whole death and resurrection and ascension, and Luke tells us, like, Mary watches it all. And just keeps pondering it, thinking about it. What, what does all of this mean? 
Now, we could spend the rest of the time that we have this morning kind of working that out. What does it mean? Walk our way through Luke's account of Jesus' life and the other three accounts of Jesus' life. Uh, We could look at the way other New Testament writers talk about Jesus, how they refer to him as God, as the Son of God. You know, make the scriptural case that, that Jesus is God. But if we did that, we wouldn't have time to tackle the main question of, well, but why? Why the incarnation? So we're going to have to take it for granted that Jesus is God in human flesh. But why? Why did God show up in person in Jesus in Israel 2,000 years ago? It's because for for 2,000 years, Christians have believed that Jesus was more than just a, a good man, More than just a good person, more than just a good teacher, more than just someone chosen by God to deliver a a unique message, Christians have believed for 2,000 years that that Jesus is God himself. That's the teaching we call the incarnation. Uh, If incarnation is a new word for you, you've not heard it before, you probably recognize that part in the middle, the word carne, uh, because you've had chili con carne, right? Or queso con carne, or guacamole con carne, or something along those lines. It means meat. It means flesh. It's the in-fleshness of Jesus, not the Jesus in your salsa kind, but like the Jesus in person. It's the embodiment of Jesus, the in-the-fleshness of God. That's what incarnation means. It's the teaching that the Jesus we read about in the Bible is both 100% human and 100% God. And from the earliest days of the church, people have wrestled with how do we explain that? It's a lot easier to explain what it's not than what it is. And there's a lot of confusion early on. There's like a thousand ways to go wrong. Some people are saying, well, if Jesus is both God and man, then that means he's like a new third kind of thing. And the church said, now that you bring that up, no, that is not correct. It means something else, but definitely not that. And then others are like, well, does that mean that then his... his Deity kind of elevated his humanity so he became more than human, like superhuman. And they said, no. Now that you've asked that question, we realize, no, if he, he's got to be fully and completely human. If he's going to rescue us, he's not more than human. And then the other question came, well, does that mean that you know, his humanity kind of pulled his deity down? And again, the church went, well, now that you ask, no. Uh, no, at the very same time that Jesus was walking on earth, he was also omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent omnibenevolent and everything else that makes God, God. And if you're wondering how all of that works, or you're going like, okay, my brain hurts right now. That's what happens to muscles when you exercise them. They start to hurt. Uh, And so welcome to the last 2,000 years of Christian contemplation. I have a number of very, very large books I would be willing to lend you that try to tackle this question. Because this is one of the greatest mysteries of the faith, explaining the incarnation. Now, calling it a mystery doesn't mean we shrug our shoulders and just say, ah, well, you have to believe it because that's what it says. It means we know we're never going to plumb the depths of the mystery. But man, how fun is it to try? Or fun for people like me who make a living getting up here and talking about this kind of thing. It's very fun for me. But at the very least... What we know when we talk about the incarnation is that Jesus was fully God, fully man, at the same time. But that still doesn't answer the question, why? Why did God come to earth in this particular 
form, this way, this manner. Why the incarnation? Well, this is where I said we're going to have to go back to the whole big story of the Bible. Because it's only in the incarnation of the Son of God, God becoming man, that we finally see the reversal of everything that was lost in the fall, the very beginning. You remember the very beginning of the story. God created the heavens and the earth, and the whole creation story is told so that we understand that the earth is like a, it's like a temple. It's the place where God dwells with his people, and the people that he has created, humanity, their job is to take the garden, the presence of God, and to increase and multiply, to expand the garden around the entirety of the globe so that the glory of God covers the earth. See, when God created heavens and the earth, they're not like we tend to think of them, these two distant realities that never interact with one another. Uh, heavens, which is you know, God's space, and earth, which is like hum- human space, they're these quasi-independent but mysteriously connected realms or dimensions, as one theologian puts it. And God's whole project was for human space to be filled with God's space, with the presence of God. But you know the story, Adam and Eve decided to spread their own glory instead of God's, and heaven and earth were ripped apart and all of humanity was plunged into spiritual death and darkness. That's on like page four of the story. So there were actually two problems that needed to be solved because of the fall. Right, one problem is that Adam and Eve and everyone who comes after them which includes each of us, we have to be individually delivered from our own sin. We have to be rescued from our own spiritual death. But the second problem that needs to be solved is that heaven and earth need to come back together again. See, God started a project and God finishes what he starts. He didn't start a project, create people that screwed it up, and now he's going to fix those people and then abandon the project. He's going back to what he started. So there's two problems that need to be solved. We need to be set right so that through us, God can set the world back right and dwell with his people again. That's what he intended from the beginning. That's why the the Bible keeps telling us over and over again, God promises, I will dwell with my people. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, John tells us, look, the word became flesh and dwelt with us lived with us. See, this is why the whole first two-thirds of the Bible is about God choosing Israel and rescuing them, living with them in a tabernacle, in a, in a temple. That's where heaven and earth had come back together and giving them the law, right? So that through them, all of humanity would be invited into this way of living towards God, rescued from sin and death and spreading the glory of God through all of creation, But of course, what happened is that Israel itself succumbed to the sin and ended up in exile. It's like sending the Coast Guard out to rescue a shipwrecked boat only for them to run aground and need rescuing. What do you do when the rescuer you sent needs rescuing themselves? So you have to send another rescuer. Except you need a rescuer who's human enough to rescue humans and yet God enough to not need rescuing. 
you see how these things are coming together. This is the why of the incarnation. Human beings are the ones who messed it all up in the first place. So if someone's going to make it right, it has to be one of us. But human beings are dead and lost, and we can't fix anything on our own. Only God can fix it. We had to be rescued by someone who is 100% human, completely human, fully one of us, but only someone who's 100% God, completely God, fully God, could actually do the rescue. You see what's going on? This is the why of the incarnation. The only way that humanity could be rescued is if God himself entered into the story. Like an author writing himself into the novel in order to rescue the characters that he had created. So that's the core why of the incarnation. But there's another why, the second why, the even bigger why that sort of brackets the core reason for the incarnation. And it's because in the person of Jesus, right, completely human, totally God, in the person of Jesus, we see the promise of heaven and earth coming back together again. The promise of God that he would dwell with his people begins to come true in Jesus. That's why he referred to himself as a walking temple. Because in himself, God's space, heaven, and and man's space, earth, uh, were rejoined. He's he's God dwelling with his people. He's the reunion of, of heaven and earth from before the fall. See, Jesus is what creation was meant to be. God entering earth without leaving heaven, dwelling with his people. And and where the story goes is each and every one of us, each and every human being who experiences God's rescue, who, who comes to Jesus in faith, we are each indwelt with the spirit of Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit, which makes us like little walking temples. And our collection, when we are together, we are a little microcosm of where heaven and earth come together, living in the new reality of, of heaven meeting earth, of God dwelling with his people. This is how God is getting that creation project, the thing he started at the very beginning, back on track. He's finishing what he started, rescuing us through Jesus and restoring the world through us and then himself ultimately. See, that's the the why of the incarnation. Why the God-man? Because in the incarnation, we see God rescuing us, God dwelling with us, heaven and earth becoming restored through Jesus. That's why. And of course, if you know, we answer the question, well, that's why, or we take a stab at answering the question, that's why, but you can ask the further question, which is like, well, okay, why come? Like, why, why for? What, what does this mean? How does that work itself out? What, what is the fact that the, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, took on in humanity and became one of us? What does that, that mean? And this is where I want you to pull back that word news that we brought up earlier. Because at its core, the incarnation means that something happened, right? Something happened. We're not just talking about ideas or theories or teachings or, or doctrines or, or suppositions. We're talking about history. We're talking about 
an event. We're talking about something that happened. In other words, it, it means that God didn't become man just so that he could more efficiently deliver new moral teachings. Right? As if our, our problem was that human beings are morally clueless and we, we just weren't getting it, so he had to come tell us in person. Right? That's not to say, of course, that there aren't things that we can, like really bracing moral truths that we can learn from Jesus, but they're within the context of a much bigger story. It also means God didn't show up in person um, just to show us in person how he wanted us to behave. Right? The problem was, okay, we got the theory, we just don't see how it works out in practice, so he's going to come show us in person, give us something concrete to hold on to. Now, that's not to say, of course, that we don't learn something from the example of Jesus living a, a life fully devoted to God, but that's not the main reason why he came. I watched the Pacers game last night, and seeing those guys play at almost an elite level, I didn't stay up to watch the very end, I googled it this morning, um, but seeing people play at that level does not inspire me to go outside and shoot hoops. It inspires me to stay on the couch and be like, I could never do that, but I'm happy to judge how you're doing it. <laughs> right? It's the same with Jesus. He lived an absolutely moral life, and that draws us to it. But also, at the same time, it's a little discouraging. I can't do that. But also, the incarnation, right? It's something that happened. It means God didn't become man just so he could teach us something new about God. Right? Our big problem wasn't a lack of information or that we were ignorant. And it's like we, we needed more facts. The problem with humanity is that we were lost and we needed somebody to come find us. Not somebody to teach us or give us advice. We needed someone to come rescue us. Each and every one of us is spiritually dead and in need of new life. See, the incarnation, it, the incarnation of Jesus isn't just, it's not a good idea or a good example or good teaching or good advice. It's good news about something that happened. And like all news, we have to decide, how am I going to respond to that? Right, we don't respond to the gospel or to the teaching of the incarnation. We don't respond to it like a teacher instructing us in a math proof that we've never learned. Right, okay, that's interesting. I think I got it right. I really hope I remember it for the test. That's not what the incarnation is. We respond to the incarnation like we are prisoners of war and leaflets have started falling from the sky and they say the war's over and the peace treaty's been signed and prisoners are free. And we get to go home now. Both are information. Only one is news. And the gospel is not good information or good advice. It's good news. That's why one, one author writes, uh, it says, With Jesus, God's rescue operation has been put into effect once and for all. A great door has swung open in the cosmos, which can never again be shut. It's the door to the prison where we've been kept chained up our whole lives. How do you respond if suddenly you see prison doors opening and for the first time in your life you realize, oh, I was in prison this whole time and I didn't even know it? That's news. The incarnation means that God himself became one of us to rescue us from the death of our own making. It's not just another good idea. It's not just a four-step method for getting your chaotic life under control. 
It's not a new way to become who you've always wanted to be. And it's not even cosmic fire insurance. It's news about what God has done in the world. Another author puts it this way. He says, the word became flesh. Ultimate mystery was born with a skull you could crush one-handed. Incarnation. It's not tame. It's not touching. It's not beautiful. It's uninhabitable terror. It's unthinkable darkness riven with unbearable light. This agonizing labor led to it. Vast upheavals of intergalactic space-time were split apart, wrenching and tearing of the very sinews of reality itself. This is incarnation, he goes on to say. You can only cover your eyes and shudder before it, before this. And he quotes, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven. So if we stop and ask ourselves, okay, I mean, we know the story, but why? Why the incarnation? It's because this is how you and, and I are being rescued from death. We're not being rescued with good advice. We're being rescued by a person, the rescuer, when the only one who could die fully human being, is also the only one whom death could never kill. One who is fully God. And he stepped into space and time to rescue you. See, the incarnation is how God rescues us and finishes what he started, how he dwells with his people. There's a reason his name is Emmanuel. God with us. So let's pray. Father and Son and Spirit, we stop, we pause, we, we kneel before you three as the one God, you three, the one God, have worked salvation for us through the sacrifice of the Son becoming man and dying in our place. Not just dying in our place, but rising again in our place and, and being what we are all called to eventually be, the place where heaven and earth come together. Father, in this Christmas season, as we are making our way towards Christmas morning in a season of waiting and in hope and in expectation. We pray that our contemplation of who Jesus is in the incarnation, God and man, would force us to stop and kneel before you. That in seeing God become man for us, we would find ourselves in this incredibly new and open and huge story of being redeemed and working with God in his project to restore creation. Father, you have called us to something much more than we could ever imagine. So we ask for your grace in Jesus' name.